chapter 4 tonight, Daniel chapter 4, as we continue through the story of Daniel, trying to understand what it means to us to live a life of resilience, to live a life of faithfulness to Yahweh, a faithfulness to Jesus in the midst of a culture that's turned its back on God. And as we jump into Daniel 4 tonight, I have a question. I want to begin tonight with a poll. Now, I'd like to have some honesty here in church, all right? So I'm not looking for the right answer. I'm looking for the honest answer. I want you to think presently, currently, of your cabin at camp right now. I'm not talking about the people in your cabin. I'm talking about the physical structure, the insides of your cabin right now. Let me ask by show of hands, who here would say that your cabin is clean right now? Talk to me, you clean cab. Oh, impressive. All right, all right, let me try this one. Who here would say your cabin has been clean the entire week. Like it's just been immaculately clean the entire, okay, okay fewer of you. I see we were trying to win some points today. Let me, let me ask this question. And again, we're being honest because it's church time. Who here would confess that either now or at some point during the week, your cabin could be generously described as a hot mess and dumpster fire? Oh, my people. There you are. Because listen to me, listen to me. I understand how this happens. Now listen, I'm a married man, I live with my wife, and when you live with a wife like my wife, things just tend to be clean. She likes it clean, I clean up for her, it's one of the ways I say I love you to her, I clean things up. But on my own, I am not a naturally clean man, it doesn't just naturally come to me. And here's what's true about your cabin, and here's what's true about any area of your life that gets messy, here's what tends to happen. When it comes to your cabin, no one walked in the first day and just decided to rip everything to shreds and make a mess. Maybe that happened, but that's more rare. Here's what tends to happen with your cabin. What tends to happen with your cabin is that you walk into your cabin one day and you're changing shoes. You take your shoes off and do you neatly put them in your bag? No, you just toss them. And then one day you're taking off a shirt and you're putting on a new shirt and so you just toss it onto your bed. And then you're eating some, you're eating some food and you unwrap the wrapper and you're like, ah, I don't see a trash can, I'll get that later. And here's how your cabin becomes messy. Not all at once, your cabin becomes messy one little decision at a time. And tonight, tonight I have one intention with you. And that is to talk to you about the fact that some of your lives have gotten messy. And your lives have not gotten messy all at once, they have gotten messy one decision at a time. Over the course of time, you didn't mean for it to happen. You didn't set out for it to be this way. You didn't try to make your life messy, but you made a decision, and that led to another decision, and that led to another decision, and your life has become a mess. And in the Bible, the word for the messes we create in our own life through our own decisions, there is a word the Bible has for that. And the word the Bible has for the messes we create by our own decisions is the word sin. And so tonight... I want to talk to you about the sin in your life because here's what I suspect is true of some of you. Some of you came into camp and there are sinful, messy things going on in your life. You never set out to make it that way, but it kind of happened. And then after it happened, you lied about it and you covered it up and you made sure no one knew. And then you got deeper and deeper and deeper into the cycle of your sin. Your life, like your cabin, has become a mess. And tonight, I want to talk to you about what happens with that mess, how we get in that mess. And most importantly for everyone here, how we come out of the mess we got ourselves in. Daniel chapter 4 verse 1 starts this way. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and people of every language who live on the earth, may you prosper greatly. 
It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. So here's what I want you to notice from the very beginning of this chapter. This chapter is different than the rest of the chapters we've read before. The rest of the chapters are telling a story from a narrator, but this chapter is actually a letter, an epistle, a note written by King Nebuchadnezzar to the entire world. So this is the coolest thing in the world that we get to see. We get to see what the most powerful man on the face of the earth has to tell us about God tonight. Write this down. What does the most powerful man in the world have to tell us about God? What does the most powerful man in the world want to tell us about God? And you're going to find out tonight. Chapter 4, verse 4 says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. I was lying in bed, and the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, and astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, David came into my presence, and I told them the dream, for he is Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods lives in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too great or too difficult to you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. Here's what happens. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I'm going to summarize for you like I have before. What's going to happen is he's going to explain his dream to Daniel. Daniel is going to interpret the dream for King Nebuchadnezzar, and then the dream is actually going to come to pass. And remember, this dream isn't random. This dream is put into his mind by God. The God who is who he is, who is in heaven and does whatever he pleases, he places this dream into Nebuchadnezzar's mind. And here's the dream. I want to summarize it for you with two images on the screen. The first is this. I want to show you the image of a tree. Here's the image. Nebuchadnezzar down here falls asleep. And he has the image. He has the image of a tree. And that tree is a great and grand and glorious tree. It gives shade and fruit to all the nations. Everyone delights in it. It is the apple of everyone's eye. It is a great wonder of the world. It is a tree that is growing up so big, so magnificently, that no one can help but notice how beautiful this tree is. That's the dream. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about a tree, but then the dream takes a weird turn. You ever had a dream that takes a weird turn? I have. Everything's going good, and then suddenly it gets weird. That's what happens in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. See, what happens immediately is this next image right here. The tree you'll see in the background is cut down. The magnificent tree that everyone loves and adores and celebrates is cut down. And then it says that metal is wrapped around the base of it so the tree can never grow again. And then what Nebuchadnezzar sees is a man. But the man has become like an animal, almost like an ox or a cattle. And he's crawling on all fours and he's eating grass off the ground. And Nebuchadnezzar is terrified by this dream. And he goes, what could this dream possibly mean? So he brings in our friend Daniel, and he says, Daniel, here's my dream. Can you interpret it for me? And Daniel says, absolutely, let me do that. Look at verse 24 in your Bibles. Here's what Daniel says. This is the interpretation, your majesty. And let this decree with the Most High has issued against the Lord my King. You will be driven away from your people and live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. 
Seven times will pass from you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree means the roots of your kingdom will be restored. Now listen to me. Daniel is going to interpret this dream. He goes, that mighty tree that was growing out of the ground, the glorious tree over all the nations, that's you, mighty king. You are powerful and you are strong and God has made it so in your life. You have dominion and sovereignty, meaning you're in charge over everything. And he says this to him, but then he goes, listen, the tree that gets cut down, that's also you. God is going to cut you down to size. God is going to chop you down. And in fact, that guy eating grass on the ground, King Nebuchadnezzar, that's you. That's where you're heading. That's what God says is going to happen to you. And then look what it says. It says that that is going to happen. Seven times will pass by. Seven times in the Bible is another word for seven years. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, for seven years of your life, you're going to be like an animal, eating grass off the ground, living in the wild, growing hair. You won't even look like a human anymore. And then in verse 26, it says, this will happen, and your kingdom will be restored to you. Look at verse 26, and underline these words, when you acknowledge that heaven rules. When you acknowledge that heaven rules. In other words, God gives a dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And the dream says this, you are this mighty king and yet I'm going to chop you down to size. And you are going to descend to the level of an animal. And the only thing that's going to save you is when you recognize that heaven rules. Now what does it mean that heaven rules? When the Bible says that heaven rules, it means that God is in charge of the world and God gets to set the rules. Here's what we said. God is who he is and you don't get a vote. But the next step of that is this, that God gets to set the rules and you also don't get a vote. And do you know why God gets to set the rules of the world? Because God created the world. You know why God gets to set the rules for your life? Because God created you. And here's what you need to know. You don't get to set the rules for your life because you didn't create you. If you created you, then you get to set the rules. But it's God's creation, therefore God gets to set the rules. It's a little like this. When I was a kid, I would go over to my friend Jacob's house. And Jacob's house was one of these interesting houses. And maybe your house is like this. Is anyone's house, by show of hands, the kind of house where every time anyone walks into the house, you have to take off your shoes? Anyone? Okay. Good amount of you. Shh. So here's what happens, here's what happens. Every time I would go to Jacob's house, I would take off my shoes, and then I would go in and I would hang out with Jacob and his family and our friends. But I want you to imagine there's a day that I walk up to Jacob's door, knock on the door, Jacob opens up the door, I'm like, hey brother, good to see you, give him a hug, and then I roll in. And he sees the shoes on my feet, he goes, hey Brian, do you mind taking off your shoes? And I want you to imagine I turn around and I look at Jacob, I go, Jake, I'm gonna be honest with you, I don't agree with your stupid rule. I don't like your rule, I think it's old fashioned, I think it's dumb and I think it's silly and I'm not taking off my shoes. And he goes, honestly bro, I'm just asking you, it's my house, why don't you take off your shoes? I go, you know what, I don't really care about your rules, I'm doing my own thing. Everyone in this room knows that I would be in the wrong, right? Why? Because it's Jacob's house, he gets to set the rules. Write this down, you live in God's house, he sets the rules. You can have opinions, you can have feelings, you can have thoughts, all those are nice things to have, but in the end, heaven rules. And because God created the world, he gets to set the rules. You are living in his house, and so when it comes to sin, and when it comes to righteousness, the way we're supposed to live before God, we have to look to God for the rules, not inside of ourselves. 
And far too many students think that if you just look inside yourself, you'll find out what's right and wrong. That's not the case. Heaven rules. It's God's house. He gets to set the rules. Verse 27, Daniel says, Therefore, your majesty, accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. Daniel says, King Nebuchadnezzar, you're about to get humbled. You're about to have your tree, that whole majesty you have, it's going to be chopped down. You're going to be like an animal eating grass off the ground. But I'm telling you, you can avoid this if you would renounce your sins. To renounce your sins is to say out loud, I'm no longer going to sin the way I was because it's God's house and God's rules and I'm living by them. To renounce is to say it out loud. And then it says, do what is right so that your wickedness and being kind to the oppressed, that, that, that then your prosperity might continue. In other words, what Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar is turn from your sin, renounce your sin, stop living the way you're living. And why does he say this? He doesn't just say because it's the right thing to do. He doesn't even just say because God says so. He gives him a reason and I want you to see this reason. The reason that King Nebuchadnezzar should stop sinning is that so his prosperity will continue. In other words, God says, I want you to stop sinning, not just for my sake, but for your sake. Like, I want you to know that the person who suffers most when you sin is you. You suffer the most when you sin. Because your sin never does anything positive for you. It never gives anything to you. It never offers you anything of value. It only takes from you. I'm going to say something right now. I'm going to ask everyone in this room to walk with maturity right now, okay? I don't want you to point. I don't want you to whisper. I don't want you to say a single word at all. But I want you to think about the type of person I'm about to describe. Okay, can we do this? All right. Some of you have people in your life who are terrible friends. And the reason they are terrible friends is because they never give anything to you. They only take. Now, don't say a word. Don't point. Don't look. Right now, look straight at me. Some of you have friends who only take from you. And when you need something, they give you nothing. But when they need something, you give them everything. They are not givers, they are takers. They take and they take and they take and they take and they never give you anything in return. That's what sin is in your life. Sin is the thing in your life that you give to and it never gives you anything of value in return. If you're writing down notes tonight, write down these three things. That sin is going to take from me, it is going to rob from me, it's going to steal from me at least three things. Here's the first thing your sin robs from you. The first thing your sin robs from you is your peace. The reason some of you are anxious all the time, the reason some of you are overwhelmed constantly, the reason some of you live in this constant state of overwhelming stress is because you are trying to conceal your sin and walk in your sin. Like I want you to imagine it this way. Imagine you get home from camp on Saturday. You get home from camp, you go home, you unpack your bag, you take a shower, and as you're doing your shower, you're getting out, you're getting ready, and mama sits you down for a home-cooked meal. You sit down for the home-cooked meal, and as you sit down, your mom sits down at the table and says, honey, I hope you had a great week at camp, and I want to hear about it, but first I need to talk to you about something. While you were in the shower, you left your cell phone on the counter. Your dad and I picked up your cell phone. We saw some things on it. We'd like to discuss that with you. Yeah. Here's my question, shh, listen, listen. Shh. If your heart rate is going up right now, it is because there's something on your cell phone that you are trying to hide. And some of you live your entire life trying to hide something. 
So you're terrified of your parents grabbing your phone or your friend grabbing your phone or someone around here grabbing your phone because you've got something hidden on it. You're terrified of someone knowing what you do on the weekends or with your friends or at school or at night in your bedroom. You're terrified of that. And so you live your life constantly afraid that someone's going to find you out. And that is so stressful. That is so anxiety-inducing. If you live your life walking in sin, it robs from your anxiety. It robs from you your peace and gives you anxiety in return. It gives you nothing good. It robs from you your peace. Number two, it robs from you your joy. Here's what I want you to know on the authority of the word of God as a preacher of the gospel. I want you to know if you are saved, if you know Jesus, that there is no sin in your life that can rob from you your salvation. If you know Jesus, there is no amount of sinning in your life that can rob from you your salvation. Your salvation is secure in Christ. Sin does not rob you of your salvation. It robs you of your joy. That's why in Psalm chapter 51, David cries out after he sinned wickedly. He did not say, Lord, restore unto me my salvation. He said, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. He has his salvation, but his joy has been entirely lost. That's what sin does to you. It doesn't give to you, it takes from you. And some people think that sin is fun because in the moment it feels good. But here's what sin has always been to me. Sin has always been to me um, the greatest invention of food that has ever come into the Western Hemisphere. It is the most wonderful invention of the modern times. It comes at the most wonderful of restaurants called McDonald's. It is a breakfast food called the McDonald's McGriddle. Yeah, listen, listen. I love the McGriddle. And about once a year, I make the mistake of getting myself a McGriddle. And here's the thing you need to know about the McGriddle. The McGriddle, if you've never had it, they put like egg and bacon and cheese, and then the outside is like a pancake that they have scientifically injected syrup into the middle of. So you're eating into this thing, and your taste buds are just exploding. You're like, this is the greatest thing, God's gift to humanity. Surely this is the peak of human civilization. And every time, once a year, I eat my McGriddle, I bite into it, and I love it. I think it is the greatest thing that's ever happened. But then here's what happens to me. About 30 minutes later, the McGriddle hits my digestive system in full. And I begin to lose the will to continue living. Like, like it hits me and I just go, what have I done? Oh no, this is a terrible decision. Why did I eat the McGriddle? Sin does the same thing to you. The same exact thing. Listen, in the moment, sin always feels fun. It feels cool. It feels enjoyable. It feels pleasurable. But over the long haul, sin can never sustain that. That's why when you start sinning in some kind of way, you always need more. You always need to go deeper. You've never sinned and been satisfied forever. Sin always demands more. It never gives anything to you. It never gives anything to you. And what I want for you to know is that sin is robbing you of your joy. It is making you miserable. It is not adding to your life. Sin robs from you your peace. It robs from you your joy. And here's the final one. Sin robs from you your intimacy with others. Because if you are walking in some kind of secret sin, you are always trying to not be found out. And in order to not be found out, what you have to do is you have to create a wall, a barrier, a facade, a mask, a fake self that you present to everyone else. And you can never actually get close to anyone. Some of you wish you were closer to your friends. You wish you had better relationships. You wish you had deeper and more meaningful relationships. But you can't do it as long as you're hiding your sin. Because sin robs intimacy from us. See, that's what Daniel understands here. When he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar, he wants Nebuchadnezzar to know his sin is not helping him. It's only robbing from him. Verse 28 says this. All of this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. You know why? Because when God promises something, it happens. 
Our God is a promise maker, and he is a promise keeper. And that happens to Nebuchadnezzar. It says 12 months later, one year later, as the king was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon that I have built at the royal residence with my mighty power and the glory of my majesty? Like in other words, Nebuchadnezzar is not getting it. God says you need to humble yourself, you need to obey, and Nebuchadnezzar is literally standing on the top of his palace going, am I not the most awesome? Am I not the greatest of all time? Look at how wonderful I am. Look at how spectacular I am. And what does Nebuchadnezzar want to do? He wants to do his own thing. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's awesome. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's glorious. And Nebuchadnezzar thinks what all of us think when we sin. We think that we know better. Every time you walk in sin, every time you choose sin in your life, it is your declaration to the God of the universe that I know better better. That's the reason you sin. Because God has told you what to do and you have looked at God and God, thank you for your suggestion very much, God, but I know better. I'm going to do my own thing. That's what you think happens. So it's like this. You're a little like my son. My son, every night that I'm home, we try to do bath time with our kids. And our son loves bath time. And we go in with all the kids and the girls just have fun. Grace just kind of pours water and plays with little toys and boats and Hope's just happy to be included. But my son Noah is a different story. See, my son Noah loves bath time, and he enjoys getting into bath time, but he's done this thing since he was one years old, and it drives us crazy, and we've been trying to train him out of it, but we've not been successful. See, here's what Noah does. He gets into the bath time, and everyone's playing, and we're having fun, and then I'll turn around to say something to my wife, and Noah will take one of the cups we use to pour water over his head. He will fill it up to the brim. He will look me in the eye and take a deep swig. Oh, oh. I just can't even imagine what's that. It's like a McGriddle to his insides. It's like awful. And he does this. And we're like, son, stop drinking the bath water. And he goes, oh, okay. And then we turn around again and he does it. And here's my question. Why do we tell him to stop drinking the bath water? Is it because we hate him? No. It's because we love him and we know what's better for him. And in his three-year-old little mind, he's like, mom and dad don't know. I know better. I'm drinking this bath water. Do you know that's exactly what you do with sin? That every time you choose to disobey God, it's you looking at God with your cup of bath water being like, yeah, yeah, you're holding out on me. This is the good stuff right here. Like, listen to me. Some of you, some of you speak with incredibly foul language. I did when I was in middle school. I'm not proud of that. That didn't make me smart, it didn't make me witty, it didn't make me intelligent. Me using cur curse words and vulgar words and disgusting words didn't make me awesome. It just showed how shallow my faith was and it showed that I thought I knew better. Some of you do the same thing. You use vulgar, disgusting words. You use racist and sexist words. There are words that are coming into your ears through the music you listen to and you think it's totally cool to use those words even though God says in the scriptures, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Let no vulgarity, no curse words come out of your mouth and you look at God and go, I know better. And you're like, God knows my heart. I can use foul words and God knows my heart. And here's the truth. God knows your heart and he commands you not to use those words. That is what you are to do. And every time you swear, every time you use vulgarity in your language, you are telling God, I know better. Listen, this isn't true of all of you, but it is true of some of you, and I'm going to speak it directly to you. Some of you get drunk frequently. For some of you, weed is a normal part of your life. For some of you, somewhere along the way, eyes right here. Shh. 
For some of you, somewhere along the way, you decided that substances were no big deal because it grows in the ground and it's natural and other people can do it. And you look at all the commands of the scripture that say to have a sober mind, to obey the laws of the land, to honor your parents. And you look at those commands and go, thank you very much, God, but I know better than you. And you go do your own thing. You're looking at the God of the universe and telling him that you know better than him. Listen, for others of you, it's gossip. Do you know that in the Bible, gossip is not just something friends do with each other. It's actually called sin. It's wickedness. It destroys life. It it torches friendships and relationships. And yet some of you just are constantly on the gossip train. And there's nothing better in your life than to learn something and go to your best friend and say, hey, I just found out something I'm not supposed to tell anyone, but I'm going to tell you right now. And, And we tend to think that's funny. And you know what God says? That's sin. It's wickedness. And every time I gossip, every time I share something I shouldn't be sharing, it is me looking up the God of the universe saying, I know better. You know what some of you do? The Bible is unbelievably clear that sex is reserved for marriage. And for some of you, you think it's no big deal. Because everyone around you is doing it, and it's just, it's just two people. We really love each other. We're probably going to get married anyway. It's no big deal. It's whatever. It's just sex. It's not even that big of a deal. It's not even a big thing. Why are church people making such a fuss about this? The reason I'm making a fuss about it is this. You look at the God of the universe who gives you clear direction on sex and say, thank you very much, God. I know better than you. What does sinning do? Sinning is us looking at the God of the universe saying, I know better. It is Nebuchadnezzar looking at God going, look at my splendor. I know what to do. I am strong. I am smart. I am intelligence. And I want you to know that God knows better. He knows what is for your good. And he always knows better. Verse 31 says this, even as these words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from your people and live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times or seven years will pass from you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched in the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar stood up on his royal palace and declared that he knew better than God. And God goes, if that's how you're going to play the game, then here's the consequence. And Nebuchadnezzar goes from the most glorious, powerful, rich, successful, well-known man in the world, and he is descended to that of an animal. He is on all fours, he's eating grass, his hair is growing out, his nails are growing out. He is becoming less of a human and more of an animal. It is leading him to his descent. And here's what you must know about your sin. Your sin never elevates you, your sin only drags you down. It only drags you down and down and down and down. And what this story gives us is one of the most vivid pictures in the entire Bible of the destination that your sin will bring you if you never turn from it. And so here's what I want you to know. Um, I have a one-year-old little girl in Hope, and I love Hope. I love her so much that I'm willing to actually say no to her, and I'm willing to tell her things and stop her when I know she's about to do something that will bring her harm. So if the front door is open and she takes off toward the street, I love her enough to say, stop, don't do that. I would be a terrible dad if I did not stop my daughter from running into the street or grabbing a knife off the counter or putting her hand on a hot stove. I would be a terrible dad if I did not do that. And I want you to know this, I would be a terrible pastor 
if I did not warn every single soul in this room that if you choose to walk in your sin, if you choose to look at the God of the universe and say, forget you, God, I'm doing my own thing, go my own direction, you don't get to call the shots, I don't care who you are, I'm living my own life, I want you to know that you will head in the same direction of Nebuchadnezzar. Your sin will not elevate you, it will lower you. And it will lower you eventually to an eternity where you are separated from God. And the word the Bible has for that separation from God is the word hell. I want you to know that hell is not something I'm making up. It's not something that I like talking about because it's fun. Hell is something I teach on because hell is something taught consistently throughout the Bible, including on the lips of Jesus himself. I want you to know that hell is real. It is a real place where you will go for all of eternity if you do not turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Heaven and hell are the only two destinations for all of eternity. Hell is real. I want you to know hell is not a joke. And everything you see, hell is a cartoon. It's people playing cards with fire all around them. It's them drinking beer and hanging out with the devil with a little pitchfork. And I want you to know if that's your vision of hell, you have been deceived by the enemy. Hell is not fun. Hell is not a joke. Hell is not the place where you have some fun and hang out with your buddies. Hell is eternal separation from God. It is eternal judgment from God for sin. It is a place that I would not wish upon my worst enemies. I would not wish upon the person who did the worst thing possible to me. Hell is not a joke. Hell is real. Hell is separation from God. Hell is punishment for sin. Hell is you looking at God saying, I'm doing my own thing. I'm going my own direction. You go in your own direction, and God says, as you wish. And he allows you to go there for all of eternity. But here's what I want you to know tonight, and the most important thing I can ever tell you about hell. I want you to know that hell is not somewhere anyone has to go. Hell is not somewhere anyone has to go, and I want to show you why. Right here in the text, verse 34, it says that the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. At that moment, here's what happens. Nebuchadnezzar looked at God and said, I know better. I know you think you're in charge, but I'm in charge. I'm setting the rules and forget you, God. I'm doing my own thing. And he goes in his own direction. But you know what happens? At one point along the way, Nebuchadnezzar realizes that this isn't working for him. So it says he turns his eyes toward heaven. Like in other words, he's going this direction. He plants his foot in the ground. He turns around and he returns to God and sets his eyes on God. You know how we turn around from the destination of hell? Do you know how we turn back to God and we're not separated from him for eternity? We do the same thing Nebuchadnezzar does. We set our eyes on God. We turn our eyes toward heaven. We turn from our sin. We repent of our sin and we go back to God. It says here in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that he, God, is patient with you. Meaning that God has been patient through your entire life, waiting that you would turn back to him. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In other words, some of you have spent your entire life running away from God, and he is waiting for that moment where you will plant your foot in the ground, turn, and recognize that God has never stopped chasing after you. Like, I want you to know this tonight. You can repent You can turn from your sin. And if you want to know what repentance means, it's this. It is seven words. Repentance is seven words. I am wrong and God is right. Write that down. I am wrong and God is right. Repentance is a change of mind. It is a change of perspective. Listen, repentance isn't just you feeling bad. It isn't just an emotion you feel. You know what I've been hearing about even at this camp this week? People have been talking about cry night. And hear me on this. 
If you experience overwhelming emotion that leads you to tears this week, praise God, that's an awesome thing. But here's what I want you to know. Your tears are not a substitute for true repentance. You just crying is not what God is after. You sobbing on some night at camp is not what God is after. What God is after is you are going this way. You say, you know what? I've been going the wrong direction. Now I'm going to go the right direction. I've been living this way. Now I'm going to live this way. That's what repentance is. That's what God calls you toward. The invitation for you tonight is to repent of your sin. Verse 34 says at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High God. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does what He pleases. You notice we've been saying that all week? That God does what He pleases with the powers of heaven and all the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? You know what I'm fascinated by? King Nebuchadnezzar repents, and he begins to battle his sin. And I want you to know this tonight. I am not here at camp so you can make peace with your sin. I am here at camp so you can make war with your sin. And I'm here to make war with your sin because your sin doesn't give anything to you. It just takes from you. It robs from you. It's giving you nothing good. And so here's the question I want to ask. Okay, if you've got a sin in your life, and you know that you have not been able to overcome that. You want to repent. You want to change. But it just doesn't seem to be happening. What do you do? And the answer is found right here in this text we just read. Nebuchadnezzar repents and he turns his eyes toward heaven. What's the first thing he does? He worships. He worships God. He talks about the worth and the value and the majesty and the glory of God. He turns his eyes toward heaven and declares how good God does. He worships and here's what I need you to know tonight. If you are walking in some kind of sin that has its claws in you, and you can't seem to be free from this, write these words down. You do not fight sin with willpower. You do not fight sin with willpower. Meaning you don't white knuckle it. You don't just try your hardest. You don't be like, this time it'll do better. If you focus on your sin, you will always lose. You do not fight sin with willpower. You fight sin with worship. You fight sin with worship. What do I mean by that? You do what Nebuchadnezzar does. You focus your eyes and your attention and your heart on God. If you focus on managing your sin, you lose every time. Your only hope is to focus on God. Because when you fill yourself, when you are filled with the Spirit, you do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Which is the Bible's way of saying when you're so full of Jesus, there's no room for sin in you anymore. That's the invitation this week. If you are walking in that kind of sense, let me speak specifically to some of you tonight. I know that there are both men and women in this room who are struggling with online pornography. I know that for some of you, this has been a battle not just for a few weeks, but for a few years. For a long time, you've been walking through this struggle. And if your primary job in fighting this battle is focusing on porn and focusing on the internet and focusing on lust and talking about yourself and talking about your sin, you'll lose every time. Because you do not fight sin with willpower, you fight sin with what? With worship. If you are struggling with pornography, here is my invitation to you. It is not to think more about your pornography addiction. It is to think more about the sovereign God of heaven, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He can set you free. Set your eyes on him, and you won't have eyes for anything else. That's the invitation. Verse 36 says this, At that same time my sanity was restored, and my honor and my splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne because of the even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. 
and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. If you have your Bible with you, circle, underline, highlight those words. Those who walk in pride he is able to humble. I asked the question at the very beginning of this sermon, and here was the question. What does the most powerful man in the world want you to know about God? And here's the answer. The most powerful man in the world wants you to know this about God. That when it comes to your sin before a holy God, you only have two choices. Write these down. Here are the two choices you have. You can humble yourself or God will humble you. When it comes to your sin, you have two choices. You humble yourself before God or the God of heaven humbles you. Those are the only choices you have. And I'm here to plead with someone tonight to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord to humble yourself before a holy God, to bring yourself to your knees in humility before God and to own your sin. And how do you do that? In a very specific way that we're going to invite you to do tonight. Like in the next hour, I'm going to invite you to do two things in your cabin time. We're going to sing a song here in just a moment. After we sing a final song of worship, we're going to go to cabin time. And in cabin time, there are two specific things I want you to do. The first is this. It is confession. To confession is to speak out loud what is true. To confess is to say what is already true. Because nothing in your life will improve and nothing will get better until you confess what is true. It's like this. I'm like a lot of men, maybe like some of your dads. Um, from time to time, I'll have the sniffles or I'll have a cough or I'll just won't be feeling well, I'll have a fever. And my wife will be like, are you sick? I'll be like, I am absolutely under no circumstances sick. It's allergies. Uh, it was a windy day, and I just didn't know what to do, and I'll just like deny, deny, deny. But here's what you know. Until I confess that I'm actually sick, I won't get better. And until you confess, confess that sin is a sickness in your life, you will not get better. Because what you do not identify will only intensify. And once you say it, you can start to solve it. Once you say it out loud. So tonight, here's the invitation. In your cabin time, confess your sin. And when I say confess your sin, can you just hear me clearly on this? I don't mean say vague things about what you're struggling with. I don't mean to just say, I struggle with lust sometimes, I guess sometimes it's an issue. Young man, I want you to say to your cabin, I am hooked on pornography, it has its claws in me, I'm not able to avoid it whatsoever, I need help. That's confession. Confession is not, oh yeah, sometimes I don't get along with my parents. Here's confession. I lie to my parents, I manipulate them, I talk back to them, I'm disrespectful, and I have sinned against them and against God. That's confession. Confession is not some vague thing out there. It is you specifically acknowledging what's happening. And some of you have never actually specifically, carefully, intentionally, vulnerably said out loud what's going on. Number one, you confess your sin. And number two, you repent of your sin. And here's what repentance is. It's you saying that God is right and I'm wrong. Repentance isn't just you crying tonight. If you cry tonight, okay. But if you can repent, it is you actually saying, God, I've been going in the wrong direction. And I turn, I confess, I repent and I'm going to begin to change my life. This is the invitation for you during cabin time tonight. Now our band's gonna make their way forward right now. Um, and like yesterday, we're gonna take a moment to sing a song as we close here, and I'm gonna invite everyone here to stay in your seats. And in fact, I'm gonna take it a step further tonight. I want you to stay right where you are tonight as we sing this song. No one's coming forward, all right? But here's what I want for this room. I want you to stay in your seats before you confess before God your sin. In other words, tonight you're going to confess to other people, and that is a beautiful thing, but I want you to know that it begins with you confessing your sin before God. 
And so as this song starts, I want you to stay right where you are, and I want you, in the privateness of your heart, in the quietness of your mind and heart, as you are seated, to confess. Come clean before God, because he already knows. And once you have confessed before God, and repented in your heart of that sin, at that point, you can choose to take one of the postures we talked about this morning. You can stand and raise your hands in the air. You can continue to stay seated in brokenness. You can kneel to the ground. You can fall on your face. But here's the invitation for everyone. Before you go confess your sins to your cabin, confess your sins before your God. Because the scriptures tell us clearly that if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive them by the power and the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the invitation for you, and that's what I'm calling you toward right now. So, Father in heaven, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word, and thank you for the story from Nebuchadnezzar. And God, above anything else that will happen at camp tonight, I pray that confession and repentance would flow throughout this place. God, would the mercy and the pardon of Jesus be flowing through this camp. God, I pray even in this room that there would be young men and young women confessing their sin for the first time to you. And that in cabins tonight, there would be young men and young women confessing their sin for the first time to one another. So God, meet us in confession, meet us in repentance, and God, we trust that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. And so God, may we lean on that kindness, may we lean on that grace, on that mercy tonight. God, would you meet us, restore our sanity, restore our lives. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said. Oh, I see.